Hello and welcome along to the football family. My name is Paul Dollery and this is our final offering of the year. So we're looking back at some of our favourite bits of the show from 2019. We kicked off back in July and since then we've explored the careers of a dozen Irish footballers of both past and present. Today we're going to bring you a flavour of what each of those guests had to say for themselves. So if you're an existing member and a regular listener to the podcast, thank you for being with us once again. If not, we're not going to fall out. Don't worry, this is a non-judgmental safe space for everyone. But if you do like what you're about to hear, you can give yourself a nice little Christmas gift by signing up for €5 per month or just €42 for an entire year. Before I go any further, actually, I need to announce the winner of our giveaway from episode 11, which I neglected to do on episode 12. We had Zach Elbuzetti in on episode 11, and up for grabs was an Ireland jersey signed by the Under-21 International. The question we asked was, which current Juventus player did Zach play against at the Under-17 European Championships in 2015? The answer was Matthias De Ligt and our winner was James Clancy. So congratulations to you, James. Now, regular listeners to this show will know that I'm never reluctant to invite on guests from my native Cork. And it was a case of start as you mean to go on with the show because on episode one, we were joined by Roy O'Donovan. He's now lining out for Robbie Fowler's Brisbane Roar in Australia. But Fowler isn't the only high profile figure that O'Donovan has played under during his career. Roy Keane brought him to Sunderland from Cork City in 2007. He spoke quite highly of Keane, but as you're about to hear, he didn't always manage to stay on his good side. When you lost a game, or you drew a game, he, he, he could be hard to be around. Um, actually, sometimes when we lost a game, Roy would you know, give us his version of events after a game for half an hour, 40 minutes or whatever in the dressing room. But he'd be so, honestly, so upset about the result. You, you wouldn't see him. That was a game on a Saturday. You wouldn't see him again until probably Tuesday or Wednesday. It took him that long to cool off, yeah. you know? Uh, I mean that. And that was, that was actually the one time, the one falling out I did have with him. Uh, not falling out as such. Uh, my, my wife now, my girlfriend then, had a, a 21st birthday. And we, we had lost the previous weekend. I'd been injured for a couple of weeks, but I was on the way back. And... Um, I went. Roy wasn't in Monday, Tuesday. He was angry. He was back in Manchester with his family. I went and seen the assistant, and I said, uh, "My my missus' twenty first par- birthday party back in Cork the weekend. Uh, is it okay? It's an international break. Is it okay if I go back?" He said, "Yeah, family first. Family first. You get off. Enjoy yourself. Blah blah. blah. Brilliant." So I, I thought, oh, "That's great." Now I'd book me flights. Blah blah blah. Going home. Thursday comes. There's a, a call down from the office. Uh, Roy wants to see the manager. The gaffer wants to see uh, Liam Miller, Anthony Stokes and, and Roy O'Donovan. I know Miller and Stokes are in trouble. They've been late again. Yeah. And, they're, and I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? I, I, I'm going to get abused here. So we went up and we got sent into the boardroom and he made us wait there for about 10 minutes. He nearly, then all of a sudden, he, he nearly kicks in the door into the boardroom. He gives, he gives it to Liam Miller and he goes to Stokes for five or ten minutes. You're always late. He, you know, you're a joke. What are you driving? You, I, I, I've never seen people's cars to break down as much as you. What, how, how are you so late? And he's abusing them. And I'm thinking, what, what have I done? And he literally just spun on his heel uh, and gave me the, the thousand yard stare. And I was like, and you, big time Charlie, heading back to Cork 
for some big party. Oh yeah, I heard all about it. Uh, Hello Magazine, The Evening Echo, <laughs> The Sun, The Star, they're all going to be there. there. Well, you can fucking forget about that because you won't be going there, right? We're playing Chelsea next week and you've got half a chance of playing. So fuck off out of my office and fuck off going back to Cork. So, uh, so obviously I've fucking frozen, come out a, a little bit rattled from that. But uh, yeah, he's a, he, it was the only time really, I suppose, I saw that side of him. But that was just him just trying to keep my feet in the ground. But uh, yeah. it, I, I found with Roy as well, he, he was like, he could be so angry, but he still had this he, the, the kind of cork wit that you didn't know where to laugh or cry. Yeah. And he was giving out to you, you know, he was just very, 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 could be very funny, but you wouldn't dare laugh, you know what I mean? But uh, I, I actually really enjoyed working with him. He's a, he was a great guy. And, um, you know, as I said, he probably, with management, that hasn't happened from just yet. But I'm sure working under Martin O'Neill, I'm sure he's, he's learned a hell of a lot. Women's sport is slowly but surely beginning to earn its fair share of the limelight here in Ireland and to the forefront of that movement has been Louise Quinn. A vastly experienced Irish international, she also helped Arsenal to win the Women's Super League title earlier this year. And while she was at home during the summer working as a pundit on RTE's coverage of the World Cup, Louise called into our studio and recounted her own journey in the game, which began, as it has done for so many of her peers, with her being the girl on her local boys team. You know, and I even even got sent some some pictures last night um, from being on the boys team, and we were just howling, laughing like my mom and my sister were in fits of laughing at me. Um, and even looking back at the pictures as well, I'm, I I like the fact as well that I still at that age I actually was ta- still taller than all the all the lads as yeah. well, which is uh, you know I've always I've always been quite proud of my height and stuff. But yeah, that, that's I would have started playing like in in the garden with dad. He'd just keep you know he'd be in goals and I'd be in goals and you know we'd just be kicking around for hours and I'd get my sisters out as well and they just sometimes just love kicking the ball around at me and yeah. But then my first team was playing um, under six Blessington Boys FC and you know my best friend he was uh, you know very very good football player and then his dad just happened to be the coach of the under six team and and then that was it and mm-hmm. he then happened to be our coach um all the way up and I just didn't feel any different because I was again I was just always playing in the in the schoolyards with all the lads as well they were my friends so it was more when you kind of faced other teams that there you know there would be things maybe said but yeah I think at the same time it just kind of brushed over my head because that could be something that could be off-putting but you know it clearly it clearly didn't just when you have that support around you good teammates and good parents, you know, on the sideline, sure, just, you just get stuck in. 2019 was a good year for Carl Moore as he helped Shelburne to get back into the top flight of Irish football by winning the League of Ireland First Division title. He's now 31, so it's 15 years since Carl left his home in Dublin to move to England to join Manchester City. He played against Liverpool in an FA Youth Cup final and he seemed to be making good progress at the club during Sven Joran Eriksson's reign but his prospects of making a breakthrough at City were scuppered when the club was taken over by its current owners, the Abu Dhabi United Group, in 2008. But, you know, we were still involved and, you know, Sven came in and, you know, he took a shine to a couple of us, you know, had us involved with the, with the first team. And, he, you know, he was he was going to include me in, in a first team game in the Carling Cup. And then he offered me a new deal um, and he wanted me to go on loan to Grasshoppers over in Switzerland once I signed my new deal but uh, the deal took so long to get over the line the window had gone to to uh, to go out on loan and you know I was kind of devastated with that because at the time Grasshoppers obviously big enough club in Switzerland it would have been great to get first team experience in a 
I don't know why he had selected these, but uh, he obviously thought they would suit my game. And you know, Sven Goran Eriksson, given his pedigree, you know, you listen to him. So that was disappointing. But we got the contract over the line anyway for another two years. And uh, yeah, then uh, at the end of the season, I think the club got a hammering uh, off Middlesbrough eight one maybe or eight nil up in up in Middlesbrough. And uh, I think that was curtains for Sven. So obviously then over the summer, there's a bit of uncertainty, but. You know, Mark Hughes came in and um, my reserve team manager at the time, Kenny Jacket, he had just got the Millwall job and uh, I'd signed my new deal and came in for pre-season and Kenny wanted to take me on loan to Millwall. So went down to Millwall that day, uh, signed the deal and all stuff like that, six-month loan and uh, in the canteen after my first training session, switched on Sky Sports News and uh, you see Man City have been taken over by the the royal family of Abu Dhabi and they're looking to sign Rubinho. <laughs> it's just a crazy old day. Like, um, you know, buzzing, obviously buzzing to go down to Millwall and, you know, get a taste of first team experience. And uh, then you see your parent club where obviously you want to aspire to be and um, getting taken over and a big injection of cash and they're spouting about all these players. I think they were the same day they were trying to rob Berbatov off United and trying to get Rubinho in. And I was just like, oh, geez, this is, this is a bit surreal. So um, obviously just get the head down and get on with things at Millwall and, and kind of go back to City and see see what it's like and uh, then she went back in January another transfer window see it's Craig Bellamy Wayne Bridge Shea Given and they're just flashing the cash like so you kind of know it's kind of curtains coming then um, to just continue in, in that vein I suppose just spending 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 until they got to where they wanted to be When Graham Barrett came in to record episode four, we had a fairly wide-ranging chat that covered his own playing career, which included a handful of appearances for Arsenal and the Republic of Ireland. We also, of course, spoke about his current role as an agent for some of Ireland's most well-known players. But it became clear as well that what he cherishes above any of his achievements on the pitch are the friendships that were made off it, and one of them in particular. Graham first got to know Liam Miller when they were teammates on the Ireland under-16 side that won the European Championships in Scotland back in 1998. They went on to become very close friends to the extent that Graham was Liam's best man on his wedding day. As we all know, Liam Miller passed away well before his time in February 2018. He was only 36 at the time and he's dearly missed by many, including Graham Barrett. I room with Liam in the under... That's how we got to know each other um, in Scotland uh, and um, became closer over the years, spent a lot of big moments together um his family and my family um you know and like that's when you ask you know what moment stands out the under 16s stuff would stand out because you know heavily because i've met you know some really unbelievable people liam being primarily probably one of the most important in my life you know and um obviously you know i said before i miss him you know, and, um, you know, look, just, yeah, I probably shouldn't talk too much more about it because I'll get upset, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's when I look back on my own career, you know, I, I tend to look at, you know, not just what happened on the pitch, but the people I met, the people I valued, you know, Liam was an incredible person, um, you know, comes from an incredible family, uh, and, you know, just uh, devastated still, really, like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
For most of his childhood, Derek Collin was hoping to follow in the footsteps of his father Seamus, who won an All-Ireland Senior Football title with Cork in 1973. That changed, though, when he was signed by Brighton and Hove Albion. Derek joined Brighton as a teenager, but really struggled with homesickness before he eventually came back home and went on to have a very successful career in the League of Ireland with Cork City and Bohemians. He's long retired at this stage, but Derek is still very passionate about football and he has strong opinions on the state of the game here. He's especially keen for the League of Ireland to get to a level where it can provide a healthy living for Irish players, which would then perhaps diminish the desire of teenagers to leave home at such a young age to try and earn careers in the UK. For my mum and dad, making that decision was so hard because I was gung-ho. I wanted to make my career as a footballer. It was a, it was a dream as a kid. Even though I suppose GA was my number one dream, I still loved watching football and playing it out in the park. And it was the only sport that I could have made a career of was GA as, you know, as amateur. And when that chance arose, I don't think my mum and dad could have stopped me the way I was so adamant that I wanted to do it, you know. Yeah. I'd, I'd love if there was, a, there was a system in place here that, like for, for our generation's kids, that they don't have to be forced to emigrate to follow their, their dream at such a young age. Like we can see, like whatever about back then, there was, there was very few, I think Paul McGrath, Curtis Fleming, there wasn't that many players there wasn't that that pathway wasn't really obvious for for young soccer players in Ireland at the time and I think at least no that has changed and we, we see that the Euros that time with, with the seven or eight players yeah. that, that established themselves in the League of Ireland first and then moved over we have to move on that we have to take advantage of what's happening the, the Premiership is is no longer going to be a place really for no the top stars will always will always go there but that's the top stars from all over Europe, all over the world, mm. we'll go to the Premiership. And that'll still be there, and that's great. But underneath that, we need to have a system in place where we're, we're the equivalent to the, to the bottom half of the Championship, League One. That's what we should have here. And we have the minds in the country, we have the, the brains, we have the coaches. We need the facilities. We need someone to, I suppose, grab the bulls by the horns and, and take the wheel of the bus and drive this bus. We have all the people for the bus, but we need someone to just take the wheel and, and, and bring it there so that we can create um, a viable... Like, could you imagine if, if young soccer players today, not to be earning premiership money, see, the premiership has, has kind of clouded people. That's not what we're talking about. Maybe like the rugby, like the rugby players here in Ireland that you can earn a career here playing soccer. There's no one seems to be pushing this. And you've the likes, like the FAI have, they're, they're obviously the turmoil that's happening there at the moment and... I'm still not hearing anything about the league. Like there's there's some great minds out there with, with some great ideas, but there's no one there to actually go and make it happen or mm-hmm. try and make it happen. I know that like there's they don't have a magic wand. We'll find someone with a magic wand. Do you know, like do everything in your power to to make this make this a reality because we have everything going for it. Like as I listened to Graham Barrett last week and his his interview was fantastic and and he was saying we have a chance to create an industry our domestic league can be so much better our, our product the players are there we need to package the product like at least we're talking about it now and that that's that's one positive that's that's happening is that the conversation is out there and, and i think there, there's a there's a mood for change you know on episode six we were joined by another cork man who's the son of a former all-ireland winner 
Although to describe Jimmy Barry Murphy as merely a former All-Ireland winner doesn't really do him justice because the man is an Irish sporting icon, a god really where I'm from. Anyway, Brian Barry Murphy is now doing a fine job as manager of League One side Rochdale. They were a penalty shootout away from knocking Manchester United out of the Carabao Cup at Old Trafford a few months ago, you might remember. Before that game, we made the journey over to Rochdale to sit down with Brian who told us why he decided to forge his own sporting path despite his early potential as a very promising hurler. Initially when I um, when I kind of stopped playing GA and started playing um, soccer, I, I couldn't really understand why myself. It was always something that, because um, I love playing hurling and I loved the game and I was obsessed with it actually. Um, and soccer was kind of almost an afterthought. But you know, I think it was the, um, I think subconsciously I was kind of aware of uh, who my father was and kind of um, the people were kind of, um, I wouldn't say kind of expecting to live up to certain expectations, but I always kind of, when I went off in soccer games, it was always a case of you were just someone from Corker and no one really knew who you were. And when I came to the UK, it was a case of no one knew who you are anyway. But uh, I, I just, I, I don't know. I think maybe there was um, there was maybe some, some sort of relief for me there subconsciously and that I could go and just kind of um, be a nobody and kind of make my own part really rather than being, um, being Jimmy's son. But like... Mm. Um, I don't know, because when I look back, I, I, there's parts of me that would still love to have played at Crow Park or we played in, in the hurling games. And when I saw the, the All-Ireland Hurling finals, I used to think to myself, I'm not sure why I made this decision. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, when you yeah. speak of people saying they have no regrets, if I, when I used to show up in Crow Park in September, I used to think, jeez, I'd love to have played in these games. But um, yeah. I, 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 just, I, I think it was the, the, um, the fact that it was, it, was, it, was, it was a professional path into a career and um, my schooling wasn't wasn't exceptional by any standard, so it was something that I uh, I was keen to pursue after after school and college, and and I kind of fell into it as such. I've never had any major um, career plans or long term plans. Never subscribed to them, and uh, just took it um, took it that that was the path that I wanted to go on, and, and I've enjoyed it. Now, while we were in the UK back in September, we also took the opportunity to sit down with 34-year-old Dubliner Mark Yates. Nowadays, he's assisting AFC Files' bid for promotion to the Football League, but that's been preceded by a very decent career with several more notable clubs. In fact, he's played for a quarter of the clubs who are currently in the Premier League, having started out with Tottenham. He also had a spell at Middlesbrough, where he was signed by current England manager Gareth Southgate. Things were going quite well for him there, but as he explained on episode 7, the situation changed quite significantly when Southgate was sacked and then replaced by Gordon Strachan. Well, I was enjoying myself, but when Strachan came in, I definitely wasn't. And he wasn't giving me any minutes, but he stuck me in against Peter away. Done all right. I think we drew two all and made one of the goals, and he came in after. And he went mad like at me, saying, oh, he didn't do enough. Like, <laughs> And I'm thinking, fucking, is he ever going to... like?" get on me case this bloke yeah. so then the following <laughs> we ended up going down to QPR the following Saturday and I thought well I'm going to be on the bench like he's definitely not starting me here and uh, Adam Johnson actually his mother got sick so he got off the bus and went home Wasn't didn't play that day so Saturday came he flips his chart he used the name his team like pff, 10 minutes before he, we'd go out for the warm up he'd like just name the team and he was like Julio on the left, Yatesy on the right, and he's like, no, 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 Yatesy, you're on the fucking left, Julio's on the right, he's like, because everyone tells me you're better on the left, he said last week, you fucking did nothing on the right, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my god, like, I'm going out here to play a match, and Way that was his team talk, yeah. he just battered me, and Loftus Road is tight, yeah, yeah, so the bench is right beside the byline, first two minutes I get the ball, and I go on a bit of a mazy, put a cross in, and it gets headed out of the front post, 
and I can hear them just battering me. But like, as it's been headed, it landed to Tarat, like Del Tarat, and he's gone and ran past about four of our players and nearly scored. And I was like, oh my God, man. I'm going to get dragged after 20 minutes here. <laughs> and I ended up having an absolute worldy. We won 5 1. I scored. I made a goal. And like, uh, I thought, right, you know, say well done to me after the game. Didn't get anything out of him. And uh, then, like, a few weeks later, I was out of sight. We were playing Newcastle away. <laughs> this is fucking mad. And uh, <laughs> I'm on the bench, and he, bring, he brings me, he brings me on for 10 minutes or something like that. And he goes, uh, he comes in after the game, we've lost 2-1. And he's like, where's your eight seat? And I'm like, what on earth could he want me for today? Like, He's like, you should have blocked the cross. And I'm thinking, blocked the cross? What's he on about here? So like, I'm looking at like, I think Marcus Bent was beside him. I'm like, what's he on about, man? And he's like screaming, screaming. He's like, fucking listen to me. like. And uh, I'm like, what are you on about, Gaffer? And he's like, the second goal. I told you, the, like, he's going to come in and fucking cross. I'm like... I wasn't even on the fucking pitch for the second goal. I was sitting on the bench behind you. And I just thought, right, that's me There's done no here. There's no winning here. Yeah, I'm gone. Like, I, I just thought, I can't, I can't do this every day. Like, And we went in and we had a chat. And he actually he actually said, like, I've no bother with you. I like you. Like, but uh, I just thought, nah, like, I'd signed a three-year deal there. I think I was only there for seven months. When Ireland beat Ukraine in a European qualifier in October, the game attracted a record crowd for a women's international at Tallis Stadium. It was an extremely good night for Ireland's Rihanna Jarrett. She scored once and also had a hand in the other two goals in the 3-2 victory. And the performance of the Wexford youth striker deservedly earned her the Player of the Match award. On the back of that result and the record-breaking attendance, Rihanna joined us on the line and spoke about how seriously she and her Ireland teammates take their roles as ambassadors for young girls in sport. I know personally for myself, um, growing up, there wouldn't have been too many females that you would have been able to look up to. And it's not because you they, they weren't good enough. It was just because they weren't as accessible as female athletes are now. Mm. Um, obviously, the men's game has, has always been big, um, especially especially in England. It's it's always easy to follow follow players, follow teams. But I, I think now um, it, the way women's football is going, and it, it's great for young kids to have kind of homegrown players that they can they can look up to. I mean, you look at Katie McCabe; she's a household name, and the likes of Denise O'Sullivan as well, which is fantastic. And and their girls that would have started in in the women's national league here in Ireland that are, are now absolutely striving for their clubs um, Denise is doing a fantastic job out, out in America she's been the MVP player for the last two seasons um, she's she's a phenomenal athlete and a phenomenal person and you see Katie McCabe she, she's grown from strength to strength since she's become the, the captain of the national team and also with with Arsenal then she, she's in fine form as well which is fantastic to see so it's great for the kids and, and young girls to be able to, to look up to, to those sort of players it was good to finally get a goalkeeper on the show in episode 9. Shortly after retiring from the game on the back of Shelburne's promotion to the Premier Division, Dean Delaney came in to reflect on his career, which included a spell at Everton, as well as a fair bit of success with Irish underage sides. As a matter of fact, he was once named Man of the Match after Ireland beat Spain at the Under-18 European Championships. Not a bad achievement to be selected as the standout performer on the pitch that day, especially given that his opposite number was a certain Iker Casillas. One of the papers on an article not a while ago, I think it was about that game actually. It might have been the anniversary that come up or something like that. And, and somebody was asking me about it. And there was a double, a double page spread. And uh, they were asking, where are you now today? Obviously, Oikir was, was, was still top of his game, you know, play, I think playing for Real Madrid or whatever, involved yeah. in Champions League, Cup finals. 
there's me at the, whatever I think it was Bowles at the time. Uh, a part-time postman, you know. Do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. The scale of the difference was huge. Like uh, you couldn't get any further away from each other. But um, no, on that day, like when you look back, it really is a proud moment. Yeah, it's something to uh, to look back on with pride, you know. Absolutely. And because um, I think uh, what you can see is at the time was I broke into the Real Madrid side at the time, and he was only sixteen, seventeen, and. Yeah. Um, he was highly spoke of at that tournament uh, as well. That, that he, uh, he was going to go on and, and be one of the, the best keepers around, you know, which he did. In fairness to him, he went on to achieve. But uh, no, if you, I'll, I'll take that. Uh, I'll take that aplomb if it's gone. <laughs> no, Dominic Foley probably wouldn't have been a household name during his playing days, but as Irish football careers go, his was certainly one of the more intriguing ones in recent memory. As well as winning six senior caps, he played his club football in five different countries, including Greece and Portugal. But it was in Belgium where he had his best spell. He played in two Belgian Cup finals while he was there. And he was also present for the early stages of a bit of a football revolution, which has transformed Belgium into a powerhouse of the game over the last few years. When I sat down for a chat with Dominic, I asked him if it's realistic for Ireland to aim to emulate what the Belgians have done. I can't see why not. The the only thing I would say at grassroots level, because as I said, I'm involved with my local club now, took a break for a good few years, but decided to get back involved. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time you'll find that if there's an under 10 or an under 12 team where you want to really catch the young fellas and teach them the right habits, etc., unless it's a parent stepping up to do it, there is no team. It's easy to stand outside and go, oh, why aren't they getting the proper coaching, etc., etc. It's a parent dropping their kid off to soccer training. And unless they step in and look after the group, there's probably none. So that's where it begins at that age. Get them in to do the basics. And it's been done in Belgium mm-hmm. um, and a lot of European countries. Like my argument would be there's a parent there. What they'll do is pick two teams, six or seven aside and one ball. So... The strong guys will have the ball for 90% of the training session and the weak fellas might touch it two or three times. Mm. Whereas if you go into football-specific training, the weaker kids will touch the ball two or three hundred times in a session. And that's how you get them to improve. Um, I've seen it myself where I did a bit of coaching uh, with Neil Finn actually in the Pat to Pro, um, the company he had, or he's still involved in actually. But the first week you get a kid coming in, you go, oh, Jesus how am I going to work a session around him? He's going to break everything up. And by the end of the 12 or 16 weeks that we were doing, they're the most improved players. So the guys who are already coming in at 90% will stay at 90%, whereas he will go from maybe 20 to 80 in the 16 weeks. So for me, that is proof that by giving them ball contact, by giving them more touches, that they can become better players. So... It's all very fine in theory then, of course, trying to get ex-players involved. I just think the more ex-players we can get involved or the more centres of excellence we have been run by ex-players or people of experience, putting on these kind of drills, the better we will become. As we all know by now, it's been a difficult year for Irish football off the field, but thankfully our underage sides have given us some reasons to be optimistic for the future. Leading the way has been Stephen Kenny's very talented under-21 team, 
who will go into next year at the top of their qualifying group for the European Championships. One of their key players has been winger Zach Elbuzedi, who recently joined League One side Lincoln City after a fine season in the League of Ireland with Waterford. Zach was born in Dublin to an Irish mother and a Libyan father. Libya have been in touch with his father to try and get him to represent them. But as Zach explained in episode 11, that's not really an opportunity he's interested in pursuing. He knows that I want to play for Ireland, so... uh... (laughs) As I think I said before, they they were on to him before, but yeah, I want to play for Ireland. Like I've grown up in Ireland, and it's it's my dream to play for the senior team. So it wouldn't feel right me playing for another nation that taking someone else's ch- taking someone else's chance. That means more for them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, his desire to see you represent Libya is entirely understandable, but also for him to see his son captaining and flourishing on the football pitch for a country that he came to whatever it was I think you said 30 years ago to build a new life for himself Yeah, I mean that must be a huge source of pride for him yeah as well. definitely he's, a, he's an adopted Irishman at the moment he's been here since he was 19 or 20 I think nearly nearly 35 years coming yeah. coming up um, so I think he feels as proud as me playing for Ireland as if I was playing for for Libya and and in fairness he's never put any pressure on me to say he wants me to play for Libya he feels as proud as as if I was playing for Libya and and yeah, he just I think he's the proudest man in the stadium when I'm playing for Ireland. So, so that brings us to our most recent episode, on which our guest was former Ireland international Keith Fahey. This is normally a members only podcast, but because of the potential for Keith Fahey's message to help others, we decided to make this episode freely available. Keith opened up, speaking very candidly about his struggles with depression and anxiety. Thankfully, he has recently sought help and he's now in a much better place. But the advice he offers from his own experience is worth taking on board for anyone who's going through a difficult time. I loved playing football, yeah, first and foremost. Like, from when I started, I loved it. Like, it was a bit of an obsession for me when I was a child, you know, uh, how the football moved, what I could do on my own with the football, the way it spun, the way it curled, what side of the foot to use, which part of the body to use. Like that, I was always fascinated by that. Um, I didn't always like being a footballer, no. I didn't always like being me, to be honest, you know what I mean? It goes a little bit deeper um, than not liking being a footballer. I was never comfortable in my own skin, being honest, like, and put me, like, hearing them a little bit. I'm trembling a little bit in front of this microphone, like, you know, like, it's just whatever it is. I have a nervous disposition, I'm anxious, I I suffer with depression, I, I have all that stuff behind me, but... Um, football was an escape for me yeah it was an escape it was an escape it was brilliant like um, when I was a child it was an escape and I loved it I loved it I loved scoring goals I loved playing I loved playing on my own I loved playing with my friends um, and then it kind of changed like I was saying there just before we, we start recording uh, it changed overnight kind of you know uh, into a job and I didn't like it you know I didn't like uh didn't like the criticism, didn't like um, orders. I felt there was being ordered around, stand here, move there, not track and runners, all that type of thing. I didn't really didn't enjoy it, you know. Mm. And then, um, obviously, I, I messed about as a child, uh, 15 years of age when I was away. Um, I was fucking about, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, to put it, put it simply, and I ended up coming home, going back, and like, it was a bit of a, a bit of chaos went through my teens, you know, and through my 20s as well, but, uh, as I went back the second time back to England, when I went back, did I always enjoy the limelight of being a footballer? No, I didn't. Um, because again, I wasn't comfortable in myself. People would be pulling down, you look at my pictures, and you had to be nice and stuff like that. And um, 
but he was always very frustrated. As as a child, always frustrated. As a teenager, frustrated, and I thought it was everything else going on around me. You know what I mean? It wasn't. It was how we feel at times, and uh, it took me a long time to realise that. But I'm very thankful I did in the end. You know. So there you have it. That's just a sample of what we've brought to our members over the last few months on the football family. If you'd like to hear more, go to members.the42.ie and you can sign up for just €5 a month or 42 quid for the year. That address again is members.the42.ie. We'll be back with our first episode of 2020 with another new guest on January 7th. For now, we hope you're enjoying the festivities. Happy New Year to you all. Thanks for listening in 2019 and we'll speak to you again very, very soon.